Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Jenna Brister. So now I'm getting fingered in a business. <laughs> now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison and this is ray lugo behind me now we're calling this week's episode whammy these are three stories about surprising situations surprises delightful and mystical and disturbing Now, in a couple of days, I am going to be dropping a very special announcement about ways that you, Risk listeners, can be connecting with me, Kevin Allison. (laughs) So stay tuned about that. I'm making new opportunities available for one-on-one coaching, training, mentoring, chit-chatting. There's a very exciting um, platform that I'm about to be involved with. So stay tuned for more information about that. And another thing is, New Year's Eve just happened. So we're wondering how many of you out there had an experience on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day that was especially memorable in a storytelling way. Whether it's an anecdote or a full-blown story, Send it in to us at pitches at risk-show.com. If something happened to you this past New Year's that was especially hilarious or terrifying or beautiful, whatever, check out our submissions page at risk-show.com and you can email the pitch directly to pitches at risk-show.com. All right, now, in a little bit, we are going to hear from Betsy Bluto, who has never shared a story at a storytelling show before. But before that, we're going to hear from Jenna Brister, who's been on the show several times. Jenna took a story studio class way back in the earliest days of the story studio and has since then become an essential part of the storytelling world. Here she is out at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles with a story we call Happy Ending. So, uh, many winters ago, I woke up one Saturday morning, and I had just moved to L.A., so it was warm in December, and I was so sore. I had tried uh, day one of Jillian Michaels' 30-Day Shred, and it fucked me up, and so I was like, I need to get a massage, and so one of my uh, longtime L.A. friends, she says, there's this day spa. It's really fancy. They got a location in Santa Monica. Give them a call. 
So I call the day spa, and uh, I'm only not saying the name because this is a podcast, but find me after, and I will tell you. Uh, and so... <laughs> I call him up and I say, I need a massage. And the operator says, uh, do you have a preference for your masseuse? And I say, anyone who's strong. I'm very sore. I tried Jillian Michaels today to shred. And they said, well, we have an opening tonight at 6 p.m. with Antonio. Uh, and I was like, done. I'll take it. <laughs> and I had nothing going on that day. And so I walked through the Santa Monica Promenade and it was fully decorated for Christmas. There's garlands everywhere, a tree. All the minstrels are singing Christmas carols. I don't know if you can call them minstrels anymore. Buskers? It's like a slur. I don't know. But minstrels, they were performing and it was like festive holiday cheer. Crowds everywhere. And I was like, ugh. And it was nice, but it was a little chaotic. And so I beelined to the spa. And I got there two hours early and they were like, perfect. You can enjoy all of our spa amenities. And oh my gosh, it was so nice. I've never been to such a fancy corporate spa. And they give me uh, a key and lead me to the women's solarium where I get a robe and there's everything in there. And so I sit in the jacuzzi. There's a steam room, mist room, a cold mist room, a sauna. I ate two tiny apples for no reason. I took a shower. I shaved again. Like I, I, There were these aromatherapy lavender towels. And so I just walk around huffing them, just like, waiting for my number to come. And, uh, and finally it's time. So I go to the lobby and I hear this uh, Javier Bardem sound alike call my name. And I said, like, Jenna? And I, I get up and I adjust my robe so I don't flash anyone. And uh, we shake hands. Sure enough, it's Antonio. And he leads me down this hallway and into a dimly lit room. And he guides me by the small of my back and he's like, um, go ahead and get a face down uh, under the covers. And I was like, thank you so much. Those are my favorite instructions, Antonio. Um, <laughs> and so he leaves and I take off my robe and then I have this moment, I laugh to myself because I'm naked in a business. Oh, that's weird, right? And this is like, so much corporate shit. I'm like, nah. And so uh, I get under the sheet face down as instructed and Antonio comes back in and he puts on some Spanish guitar music. He's like this... Spanish slash Italian man. He has long black hair pulled back into a low bun. And uh, just to give you a vis. Um, and so he takes my robe and he puts it in an oven. Like there's a robe oven. <laughs> Fancy. And I uh, never seen something. And the massage starts. And we're making small talk. Oh yeah, holiday travel. Ugh, you know. And, uh, but the massage is amazing. And it's like head, neck, shoulders hamstrings, quads, like everything. I'm like, wow, the operator was right. Antonio is so strong. And then he asked for permission to massage my glutes. And because Jillian Michaels made me do squats, and I was like, yes, please. And so he's massaging my glutes. I'm like, wow, Antonio is thorough. And then he removes his hands from my oily butt cheeks, and he pulls up the sheet and says, okay, flip over. So I do, and I'm, as I'm flipping over, I have this very real thought of like, I'm gonna sleep so well tonight. I could fall asleep right now. And then I'm face up, and he pulls my right leg out from under the sheet and starts massaging, you know, calf, shin, the huge, quads. And then his thumb and fingers are right on my inner thigh for longer than the two minutes where every other zone is having. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm getting so turned on. I was like, did Antonio major in erogenous zones? Like, I don't know. And is that a course? And... <laughs> I don't know if he can tell that I'm getting turned on. I'm like, I'm not moaning, but I'm just like, oh my God, this is like, ah. And then he leans in and whispers, do you want me to keep going? And I couldn't form words, so I was just like, uh. And then 
he rips off the sheet, all right? So I'm fully naked, like legs akimbo. And then he puts his mouth on my left nipple and two massage school certified fingers inside me. So now I'm getting fingered in a business. I cannot believe this is happening. I can't believe it. Me, Jenna Brister, getting fingered in a business. I've arrived and and so and as this is happening, I'm like, okay, well, for, I'm never gonna tell anyone about this. I decide that right then and there. I'm like, no one will ever hear. This is my secret because <laughs> no one will understand. And uh, and it's going great. Like it's very oily, and I'm just like, what the fuck is going on? And. Uh, and my, my mind is racing, because I'm like, this is so cool, but like, what is happening? Um, and, and then uh, he removes his uh, mouth from my nipple, and he starts going down on me. And so now I'm getting oral sex in a business. <laughs> and that just like blows my mind. I cannot believe this is happening. Um, and I have, this, I have this realization, I'm like, okay, he would make a really good boyfriend. Like, he knows exactly what he is doing. Like, his mouth and hands are all over my body. Like, he knows my body better than I do at this point. Like, what is happening? And I have this moment of clarity. Oh, I'm paying for this. Changes things, still. I didn't mind. And so, as um, uh, he's tag-teaming my vagina, um, I realize, like, I... Is this illegal? Like, could I, am I, is this, can I go to jail for this? And then I start thinking, the whole time this is happening, my mind's like elsewhere in a courtroom. <laughs> like, he'd be like, Jenna Brister, did you? And so I, and I was thinking like, oh my gosh, is he like, is he an operative for the FBI? Like, is he, like, is he trying to catch female Johns? Like, am I part of a sting operation? I don't know. Also, did the FBI say, hey, finger her? Or has he gone rogue? Like, I don't know. I don't know what's happening. I don't know. But then I, I'm like, breathe, Jenna, just breathe, relax, enjoy it. Stop micromanaging your happy ending, you know? Like, this is just fucking chill. It's hard to while it's happening. And again, I'm like, I can never tell anyone. Like, no, 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 I can't. Like, there's no way. Because people don't understand. Like, it, cause until it's happened to you, uh, this is me, and now I'm like, in the middle of it, I'm like, they don't really know. It's actually quite fun. It's actually very good. Totally consensual. I'm having a blast. But then, as I'm trying to enjoy it, I'm like, okay, enjoy this because this is the closest you've ever come to like a porn situation. Is this a porn situation? And I look over to this Zen shelf where there's like crystals and oils, and I'm like, I'm looking for a little red recording light, and I don't see one or no tripods. And I was like, this is just for me. Okay. And no one knows that I'm here, besides Antonio. No one in the whole world knows that I'm here, which kind of turns me on a lot. Not in a Natalie Holloway way, but in like a sexual deviant way. And so, dated reference. I almost did John Bonet, but like, that's not even funny. Um, <laughs> so as this is going down, I realize that I have to orgasm. Like, I'm getting closer and closer and closer to orgasm and like how thin are these walls um like I, I don't know if I can and so as and Antonio is just going to town like he's really he's amazing and and then I, I'm like should I reciprocate and I start getting mad at myself I'm like Jenna 
like you gotta you gotta reciprocate and I was like do I just like jack him off and I was like no you are paying for this lay back this is Antonio's job now And so I do, I lay back and I'm enjoying it. And then I'm like, the more I lay back and enjoy it though, the more I'm like, I gotta, I gotta, this is happening, okay. And so, uh, and, I, and I, I realize I'm, um, I'm an unlikely person to be in this situation. Like I have a job and a family who loves me, but like honestly, that didn't matter at all at this point. I was like, I will go for broke with Antonio. Like I will go to the end of the world. And I was the Richard Gere, he was the Julia Roberts. Like I had a lot of time to think. This is a 50-minute massage. I had, like, plenty of time to, like, you know. And so then I, I, I'm getting closer and closer to climaxing. I'm like, you know, I just got to do it. I don't, I, I, I don't know what time it is. I booked a 50-minute massage, but, like, I can't. I have no concept. And so I'm about to, I open my mouth to tell him uh, that I want to flip over because I can come very fast if I'm on my stomach. And, and then right as I am, I'm going to tell him this, cling, 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 the wind chimes go off. My massage is over. So Antonio removes his fingers from inside me, leans over and whispers, thanks for letting me do that. And then he lays my robe from the oven on me and leaves. And I was like, what the, oh my God. I should have got the 90. I got it. You always get the 90. I didn't know. I didn't know this was gonna happen. But like, I can't feel my limbs. I can't feel anything. I'm like ready, I'm like there, you know? You know that memory, like you're there. And so I, I gather myself and I, I get off the table and I cling into the wind chimes and put on the warm robe and it's very cozy, nice touch. And, uh, and I'm like, okay, yeah, you're a person, you're fine, you're fine. Yeah, you're not going to jail, right? Um, and so I, I go in the hallway and Antonio's there and he hands me a glass of water and two business cards. And he says, don't show anyone these. I make house calls. And winked at me. And I was like, what? <laughs> and so I put him in the robe pocket and we're walking silently back to the women's solarium. <laughs> and we get there. And I still haven't said anything this whole time. Uh, what do you say? And uh, I look at him and I said, I guess we should hug. And he laughs, he laughs at me. And, and he gives me this awkward side hug. And I was like, really, after all that, Antonio? That's as much as you can muster up? An awkward side hug? And I go into the solarium and, and like acting like a normal person, like I didn't just participate in sex acts back in the room. And, um, and I get dressed and uh, I go out to the lobby and I pay my bill, I tip him 30%. And I do fill out a comment card. Uh, and in all caps, I was like, Antonio is amazing. <laughs> He was. And so I go out and then I, I leave the spot and I'm back on the Third Street Promenade in Christmasville. And I'm like, fuck. And, and so I'm walking through the crowds, like trying to find my way. I'm delirious. And, but this time the minstrels are singing Oh Holy Night, which is my favorite Christmas hymn. My favorite one on Christmas Eve at church. I'm like, and so I stop to try to enjoy it, but I'm on the brink of orgasm. And like, if you've ever tried to enjoy a, a hymn when you're about to come, not happening. And so I was like, nice job, minstrels. I gotta go home and vibe this out immediately. And I did. So, 
So winter goes by. Spring rolls around, comes and goes. It's summer. And uh, I had avoided all massage situations, uh, mostly because of the guilt and shame I felt for paying for sex acts. But also, I was kind of nervous that I liked it so much. I still hadn't told anybody, and I was like, the secret I had. I was like, that was so fun and so hot. And everything was eclipsed by that, how much I enjoyed it. And I was starting to get really sore again. And I hadn't had a massage in that long. And even though I was not celibate, any action I got was completely free of charge. And I decide, maybe if I go again, maybe if I know it's going to happen, I'll be ready sooner. And like, I could definitely orgasm once, maybe twice even. Like, I don't know. I was ill-prepared. And I wonder if it's going to be that hot the next time. And so... I drink two blue moons and get up the guts to call the day spa. And again, it's a Saturday morning and the operator answers and asks if I have a preference for a masseuse. And I say, uh, oh yeah, I played it real cool. I was like, oh, you know what? I had someone last time, someone strong. I was probably in the system. I think it's Antonio, is it? Is that it? She says, Antonio is no longer at this location or with the company. My heart sank. Did he finger a whistleblower and get canned? (laughs) And then she tells me, well, if you're looking for someone strong, Randy is available at 4 p.m. today. (laughs) I'll take it. And so I was like, perfect. All right, sober up, Brister. And so I, uh, I went straight there. I was like, I'm gonna enjoy all the amenities. And so I get back to the spa. I'm like, yeah, I know where the solarium is. I got this. I get my robe on. I do the cold sauna, I do uh, the steam room, the cold mist, I eat an apple, I shower twice, like I'm ready to go. And I get to the lobby and I'm biting my nails just thinking about this potential mind blow that lies ahead. When Randy with an eye comes barreling around the corner, and Randy was more Mrs. Doubtfire than Antonio Banderas, and, and she's like, Jenner! And I was like, oh, that's, that's got to be me. She's like, it's fate. This is fate. I wasn't gonna work today, but now we are. And she's jack-o'-lantern teeth. She's like a late, she's a linebacker. She's like, yeah, let's do this, Jenner. And I was like, yes, Randy, let's do this. <laughs> and that's my story's happy ending. Thank you so much. you want me to keep going? Uh. Thanks for letting me do that. It was a weekday, and it was in the spring a couple of years ago. I had a couple of hours between client appointments. It was a work day for me. So I decided I'm going to go get the grocery shopping out of the way. And I'm in the price chopper, 
And I'm going down the aisle, and my phone rang. And I looked at it, and it was Sandy, my hairstylist. And I went, oh, no, did I forget a haircut appointment? And then, no, no, I just got my haircut a couple of weeks ago. So I answered the phone, and I said, hi, Sandy, what's up? And she said, hi, Betsy, I'm not really sure how to tell you this. It's the weirdest thing, and you're probably going to think I'm crazy. But I'm in an appointment right now with a medium. And the medium channeled my mother, who had passed away a couple of years ago. And my mother's talking to me, and all of a sudden the medium said, wait, wait, I'm, I'm getting another spirit coming forward. And the spirit says that she has to contact her daughter, with an urgent message. Sandy, do you know somebody named Betsy? And Sandy said, well, yeah. I have a client named Betsy, and I cut her hair. And the medium said, well, this has never happened to me before. I have never been in a session channeling a spirit and having another spirit come in on the scene and interrupt it. But this spirit, this woman, is very insistent and said she has to get this urgent message to her daughter, Betsy. So can you call Betsy, Sandy? And Sandy said, well, I guess I could, but I'm probably going to lose a customer because she's going to think I'm nuts. <laughs> so, so that's why I'm calling you, Betsy, And I know this sounds really crazy. And I said, no, Sandy, it doesn't sound crazy at all. It sounds just like my mother. (laughs) And I said, and Sandy, this is not the first time I've been contacted by spirit. You see, about 30 years before then, I had been contacted by the spirit of my dear brother, Anthony, who had died. And I had just gone through a divorce, and I was lonely, and I was very sad. And I was driving home from Boston in the car. My son was in the back seat asleep. And I was really unhappy about coming back to Vermont. And I said out loud in the car, Dear God, what am I going to do now? And my dead brother Anthony said to me as clear as a bell, it was like he was sitting in the passenger seat, contact Brad. And I said, How? And he said, Go back to the store. You see, the week before that, I had gone into a store And I met this incredibly charming, handsome man named Brad. And we struck up a conversation, and we really hit it off, but then we just went our separate ways. So I took my brother's advice, and I went back to the store. And I made contact with Brad, and he asked me out. And we've been together ever since. Really powerful. Thank you. So I said, no, Sandy, it doesn't sound weird. 
But here's the thing. I'm in the middle of the grocery store. I'm in the price chopper. And I'm thinking, I better take this call outside. So I'm going to run out to my car. And Sandy said, okay, I'm going to turn the phone over to the medium, and he's going to take it from here. So I ran out to my car, and my heart was pounding. My palms were all sweaty, and I was really scared. And I got into my car, and thank God it was a cool day because I was sweating and my heart was pounding so hard. You see, my mother and I had always had a rocky relationship. She was physically abusive. And when I was 15 years old, we got into a terrible fight. I don't even remember what it was about. It could have been my hair or my clothes. I was a hippie in the 60s. And she hated that look. So she screams at me, and I screamed back at her, and she slapped me so hard in the face, I saw stars. I actually went blind. I was in a blind rage, and I grabbed her by the front of her dress, and I threw her up against the wall, and I said, if you ever hit me again, I'll kill you. And I let her go, and she hissed, you get out of my house, and don't you ever come back. So I did. At 15, I left home. And at 19, I got married. So I was really dreading what my mother would say to me. And I thought when my mother died that she was done hurting me. So I was braced. And I said to the medium, okay, I'm ready. What does my mother want? And the medium said, your mother says that you have a very good friend, and she's very sick. As a matter of fact, she's dying. And you're reluctant to go and see her because it's so incredibly sad. But you must see her one last time before she passes away. And I said, that's true. My best friend is dying of a brain tumor. And I am very reluctant to go see her again because every time I look at her, she starts to cry. And I feel like I'm making her sadder by being there. But okay. Tell my mother, I'll go see my friend. And the medium said, your mother's right here. She can hear you. So I said, Okay, Mom, I'll go see my friend this week. And the medium said, that's good. She's satisfied with that. And I said, oh, Sandy, I'm so sorry that my mother interrupted your session with your mother. I really owe you. And then the medium said, wait, wait, there's another spirit coming forward. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, there's a spirit coming forward for you, Betsy. It's your father. And I said, oh, no. (laughs) This one can't be good. You see, my father was verbally abusive to me. When I was going through a divorce, my marriage blew up overnight. And I called my father to tell him that I was getting a divorce. And he said, Betsy, 
When you got married, you took a vow, for better or worse, until death do you part, and you've broken your vow. You're a disgrace to your family. You are no longer my daughter. I disown you. And I felt like I had been kicked in the stomach. My mother had just passed away less than a year earlier. My marriage had blown up in my face. And here was my father disowning me. It was so painful. Seven years later, I got remarried to my dear Brad. And my dad decided he had to walk me down the aisle. And so he did. And it was a little rocky, but we got through it. A few years after that, my dad had a bad stroke, and he was in a nursing home in Florida, and he was dying. So I decided I'm going to go down there and see him one last time, maybe get some closure. So Brad stayed home with our son, took care of him, and I got on a plane and I went down to Florida, and I went straight to the nursing home. And my dad was asleep when I got there. So I pulled a chair up to his bed and I just sat there and I watched him. And it was incredibly sad. My dad was a very strong and vibrant man. And lying there in that bed, he looked so small and so frail. And then he woke up and he looked at me and he said, Betsy, what are you doing here? And then he looked around the room And he said, and where's your husband? Did you lose another one? (laughs) Oh, I felt like I had been kicked in the stomach again. I could actually taste the bile coming up in my throat. I took a couple of deep breaths, and I said, gee, Dad, I'm so glad I took time off from work, bought a plane ticket, flew down here, rented a car, got a hotel room, so you could kick me to the curb one last time before you died. And I got up, and I stormed out of the room, and I went back to my hotel, and I just cried my eyes out. And the next morning, I caught the first plane that I could back to Burlington. And my dad died shortly after that. So when the medium said that my father wanted to talk to me, I really didn't want to talk to him. And I was dreading what he was going to say. So I said, what does my father want? And the medium said, your father wants to tell you how very sorry he is that he was so mean to you. And he wants to tell you what a great mom you've been to your son. And he wishes that he had been a better father to you. That's it? Wow. And the medium said, he's so very sorry. And I said, okay, that's okay, Dad. I realized that you were... You were dying, and you were hurting. 
and I forgive you. And the sun came out. The sun came out. And in that moment, I realized the incredible power of forgiveness and all those feelings of sadness and anger and hurt and pain and fear just lifted off my shoulders and I felt incredibly light. And then I was struck by the thought that death isn't the end, that people can actually continue to grow and learn and change, make amends, connect with their loved ones and guide them. And I was overwhelmed with this incredible joyfulness and it gave me such a peaceful feeling, especially for my dear friend who was dying. And I felt so much gratitude. I said into the phone, thank you, all of you, for connecting with me today. I love you. Today is my 27th wedding anniversary. Thank you. And I thank my brother, my dear brother Anthony, who guided me to this wonderful man. And hey, Dad, see, I didn't lose another one. My husband's right here.
This is Risk. This is AC Newman behind me now. And we just heard from Betsy Bluto, who had never shared a story before live on stage like that. When we went to Burlington, Vermont, that was such a great show last year. And uh, that's where that was recorded. Before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. And let's face it, most New Year's resolutions are hard to keep, but if your (laughs) resolution was to stop wasting time going to the post office, that's easy. Just use stamps.com. With stamps.com, you can do anything you can do at the post office right from your computer. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. You just use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. With stamps.com, you get five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Over 700,000 small businesses already use stamps.com like Risk and the Story Studio. We've been using stamps.com for years and we love it. So give yourself a resolution you can actually keep this year. Stop going to the post office and go to stamps.com instead. There's no risk with our promo code risk. (laughs) You get a special offer that includes a four week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. The promo code is risk stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Our final story on this week's episode comes from a very beloved member of the Risk team and the Story Studio team. Amy Salloway teaches storytelling workshops out there in Minneapolis, St. Paul. This story was recorded the last time that Risk was out in St. Paul. You can find Amy at amysalloway.com, and here she is now with a story we call The Equalizer. So in fall of 1989, just as I was sort of closing in on graduating from the University of Minnesota, two things happened for me simultaneously. One, I acquired an actual bona fide traditionally defined boyfriend for the first time in my entire life. Thank thank you. (laughs) And two, I acquired an illness. So No one could believe that David and I were a couple because I was on the far end of extroverted, loquacious, loud. I was a theater major. I was loud. And David was quiet. He was shy. He was socially phobic. He wore a 100% organic cotton clothing in tan taupe and beige to try to blend in with the natural environment. He wore Clark's boots, a very quiet shoe. He, 
He ate quiet foods like oatmeal, and whenever possible, he did not talk. Instead, he biked. He was a cyclist, and he would take long four- and five-hour bike rides into the Minnesota prairie and the trails and the forests, and when he came back, he smelled like the wind. And I would say, how was your bike ride? And he would hold out a pine cone. <laughs> which I figured meant good. <laughs> also, David was beautiful. He was wispy and ethereal and incredibly toned from all that biking. And that is not what you would picture pairing with this festival of large, lumpy awkwardness. But I have a theory that I would like to introduce to you that I call the equalizer, which says that for a couple to be successful... The like flaws and detriments of one half of the couple have to be of equal weight to the flaws in the other half of the couple. They don't have to be the same flaws, they just have to be equally weighted. So, beautiful David, you know, had his social phobia and also the fact that he was going bald, and that sort of pretty much equalized my extremely round physique. I mean, honestly, I wasn't really sure why he was with me. I asked him once. We had met at the Renaissance Festival. Like, obviously, I know. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> um, and I asked him at one point, like, with all of the girls running around out there, what made you want to get to know me? And he said, I, I don't know. You, you, were, you were laughing and mischievous and bold. And I liked that. And I made a mental note to myself, dear self, please always be laughing and mischievous and bold. <laughs> so about three months after David and I started going out, I could not get out of bed. I was struck with this degree and intensity of tiredness that was alarming, like I was weighed down by anvils. I couldn't even like really lift my arms to wash my face in the bathroom or shampoo my hair. It was too exhausting. I was hot and cold, and I had this brain thing going on where I would think a sentence in my head, but the words that would come out of my mouth were totally different words. And I thought, oh, I don't know. I probably have some gross virus. Like, don't be a baby, Amy. Suck it up. And I curled myself out of the apartment to go to my part-time student office job. But just climbing the steps up onto the bus, my legs would barely bend. I felt like I was 100 years old. I got to my desk at work where there was the stack of invoices that I was supposed to code and file. And I put my head down on them and fell asleep. And then I woke up and asked my supervisor if I could please go take a nap in the break room. And she looked at me like I was on something. I mean, I was 21 years old. What 21-year-old needs a lunchtime nap? I went home and I, I tried to sleep and sleep and sleep it off. But whatever this was, it didn't go away. 
I tried to go to rehearsals for my improv company, and I got talked to about being apathetic and put on the inactive list. I couldn't go to auditions. I called in sick too many times to my office job and got fired. And this whole time, I was supposed to be working on my senior thesis project to be able to graduate Phi Beta Kappa Summa Cum Laude, and I had to set it aside and delay my graduation for a semester. And then I just lay in bed like a beach starfish, crying to David, you deserve a girlfriend who's pretty and has hygiene and wears clothes, and instead you have this. And he hugged me and said, no, no, I want this girlfriend. You're sick now, but it's not forever, just for now. Not forever, just for now. <laughs> and he, he took off from his office job to drive me to doctor's appointments in suburbs I had never even been to to try to figure out what was wrong with me. And all of the doctors said some variation of, you know, well, you're an overachiever. Clearly, you're under a lot of stress. Or, Amy, adulthood is a big transition. Maybe you have depression or anxiety or stress, overachieving. And I was like, no, I like being an overachiever. I like stress. I like anxiety and depression. Those are the norms for me. That's what I know. This is not the norm. They didn't know what to do with that, but they tested me for cytomegalovirus, Epstein-Barr, Lyme disease, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus. It's never lupus. Um, <laughs> and honestly, it wasn't any of those. All of those tests came back negative. And time passed. Imagine a seasonal montage. There you go. I felt like my body was this bizarre, distant planet. I gained 60 pounds. And then I got a referral <laughs> to go to an infectious disease specialist. <laughs> infectious disease. But this was the guy who told me what I had. He said, you have chronic fatigue syndrome. We think it might be an autoimmune disorder. We know that um, it's mysterious. It's sort of in epidemic proportions, mostly hitting young women. And I said, oh, okay. Uh, well, bummer, but okay. Uh, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome, great. So what drug do I take? Um, what medication? Do, you know, let's start the chemo or the transplant or, you know, whatever we need to do because, you know, I'm 21 and I want to go achieve and have my dreams and live my life. Woo! And he said, <clears throat> about that, <laughs> um, there is very little research into chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, no one knows what causes chronic fatigue. No one knows what path the disease has. There is no treatment protocol. There is no medication. There's no chronic fatigue clinic. There's no chronic fatigue specialists. There is definitely no cure. He finished by saying, Godspeed. I looked at David, who was there for comfort, sitting in a bright blue chair, that he was not camouflaged in. And I thought, all this man wants are mountains and air and pine trees to hug. And now he is saddled with this human 
rubble. And all of a sudden, I was so angry at him for being beautiful and healthy. And then I was angry at myself for even having that thought. And then I basically sunk into fear. When David and I met, he had planned to move to Seattle because he had a bunch of relatives that lived there. And then he didn't move because he was with me. But now he was in this holding pattern of being my caretaker. And I was lying comatose on a bed, which actually you can do in any city. It's a transferable skill. Um, So when David asked, do you think maybe we could try living in Seattle? I said, yes, yes, of course, yes. I said yes, even though I was aware that Seattle was very gray and very rainy. I said yes because I knew that our equalizer was so far off. I had become needy and fragile and less desirable and less attractive and much more difficult to love. And I had to try to tip the balance back. So I told myself that I, I was going to visualize being healthy in Seattle. I mean, in fact, like, sure, it's rainy, but I mean, it is also like lush and green and organic with like rivers of coffee and tofu growing on trees. And I figured that is for sure the place where I will heal. I will heal. I did not heal. (laughs) Oh, God. The gray of Seattle targeted the tiny speck of energy stored in my mitochondria and sucked it out like a fluke worm. (laughs) The moisture created what doctors refer to as a chronic inflammatory response. We don't have to get into immunology right here, right now. But basically, this is why the elderly and infirm move to the Southwest. This is why your Bubby and Zadie have a condo in Phoenix. Because dry, arid climates help autoimmune disorders, and moist, humid climates make them worse. I got worse. And what's even more awful, I had no health insurance. I know, it was a total blast. Luckily, Seattle did have a lot of alternative medicine. They actually had a whole university where uh, they trained practitioners in like every possible modality of natural medicine. And then those clinicians had a student clinic, which was again, like not cheap, but compared to paying out of pocket for an allopathic doctor, like... It was my best option. And the clinicians like wore Birkenstocks and they all had names like Spirit and Salmon. I wanted to get back energy and stamina and normalcy so badly. I yes anded every single thing they suggested. So I got acupuncture twice a week. I got craniosacral therapy. I got a constitutional homeopathic remedy. The six little pellets, little tiny pellets of health. Um, I got moxibustion, which is where, while you're getting acupuncture, they put a burning incense cone in my navel, yes, to warm up my chi. Apparently my chi was chilly. (laughs) 
Who knew? They put me on this extremely restrictive hypoallergenic diet. I mean, I must have eaten some normal foods that people recognize, but what I remember in my head is spending a year eating twigs and sand. Yeah. And a spirit and salmon said that I had to go get an array of full-spectrum lighting. This was the most important thing. They said that if you stare into full-spectrum lighting, it changes the neurotransmitters in your brain, the serotonin and dopamine, and that, in turn, affects wakefulness and energy and stamina and mood, and they sent me off to go get uh, full-spectrum lighting. So David and I trekked off to Seattle Full-Spectrum Lighting Supply, which was a store that had had this um, sort of Peter Max-inspired yellow smiling sunshine wearing sunglasses as its logo. And um, I feel safe in saying that Seattle Full Spectrum Lighting Supplies' major clientele were not people with chronic illness, <laughs> if you get my drift. <laughs> so um, I went to the back of the store where the displays were, and there was this big tic-tac-toe grid of these huge, bright, bright, white, globe-style lights. And I, I walked up to those lights. My face was so close, I could hear my hair sizzling slightly. And the lights were humming. They had a hum. And they were warm. They felt like a living creature. And something about being in that hot hum, that warmth, viscerally brought back the person I used to be. I felt so clearly what it had been like to be alive and laughing and mischievous and bold. I felt it, and it just devastated me. And I reached down and picked up two of those globe lights still in bubble wrap, and I looked at the price, and they were so expensive. They were so out of our price range. And I just clutched them to my chest like two spare boobs. And like I was rocking back and forth and sobbing like a crazy person out of desperation to have something, some of this, and I, David was a few feet away, and I said, David, we're going to get one light bulb, okay? We're going to get one bulb! It was a hundred bucks. We took it home, and I screwed it into my crappy little lamp and stood by it like it was a beacon, like it was devil's tower, and I stood there day and night, David would come home from his job and say, Amy, did you go to work today? Did you call in sick again? Amy, you, you have to earn an income. And I would say, I'm, I'm absorbing the light, David. I'm absorbing the light, okay, God. I was really fun to be with. <laughs> David was so patient. He never laughed at the treatments I was trying or questioned their validity or my sanity, even though there was no real sign that anything was helping me. 
but we talked less and less. And our car rides went from silent to, like, deathly silent. And one day I found David's bike calendar sitting on the kitchen counter. He had this little, like, calendar log where he would write in every day, you know, how many miles he rode and what the path was like and draw a little squiggle. And instead of mileage numbers, all of the days said, drive Amy, drive Amy. Drive Amy. This illness hadn't just consumed me. I had let it consume him too. There was no more equalizer. And eventually David broke up with me. And when he did, I moved back here to Minneapolis. Imagine a montage, if you will, seasons, you know, the birds, Ecclesiastes, turn, turn, turn. And now I'm here. I have had chronic fatigue syndrome for 30 years. Sadly, David was wrong. It wasn't just temporary. It's probably forever. A bunch of years ago, I saw a therapist who specialized in treating clients with disabilities. And I sat down on her couch, and I figured I was going to tell her my whole story. To my surprise... I started sort of gushing out a lot more emotions than I thought I had stored in me or that I was carrying around. I did not anticipate that I would suddenly be saying, I hate my body. I hate that it has willingly harbored this disease and been compromised by it. I hate every moment of life that I've lost and all the activism I wanted to do, the social justice I wanted to create, the art I wanted to put in the world. I am angry. I am angry that I have spent my life alone and without love. Because who is going to love this? Who is going to equalize with this? No one. The therapist let me disintegrate and then reintegrate again in my own time. (laughs) And then she said, Amy, listen to yourself. Has anything positive ever been created by an outpouring of hatred? (laughs) I don't think so. Amy, you are giving your body two conflicting messages. You're telling it, I hate you, and get better. (laughs) Those you can't, you can't do those two things. They don't go together. Amy, your body is a part of you. And chronic fatigue syndrome is a part of your body, possibly forever. You have got to stop waging a war on your physical self and find a way to accept it, partner with it, love it. You have to love your physical self, all of it, illness, included. And my response, of course, was, fuck that. (laughs) Like I am going to love the disease that has taken all of me away from me. And she said, just think about it. And so I do. I think about it all the time whether I can stop being angry and instead be grateful 
for my fucked up <laughs> dysfunctional body that somehow, despite everything, is still here, is still surviving. I know, I know. <laughs> I also think about whether maybe I could be angry at things that are outside of me instead of things that are inside of me. For example, maybe I could be angry at medical science that has invested no time or money into researching an invisible illness that affects millions of people every year, huh, most of them women. Or, yes, or maybe I could be angry at Big Pharma and the healthcare industry, right, that refuse to develop a medication for chronic fatigue syndrome and refuse to cover medications used off-label that could make a major difference in my quality of life. Uh-huh, or maybe... I could be angry at, oh, capitalism (laughs) that set up, thank you, a society so rooted in classism, economic growth, and productivity that anybody forced to live outside those standards by illness or disability or single parenthood or anything is made to feel invisible, disposable, and worthless. Thank you. I am angry at those things. And I started to write about them and talk about them. And that has made me feel a little bit better. I can't yet imagine feeling self-love and acceptance filling me up with the power of a blinding white full-spectrum grow matrix magically bringing back all of me, radiant me. It's hard. That feels a long way off. But I think I can imagine one light bulb. One light bulb in one hand. Thanks. Wish that I was dead With an aching in my head I lay motionless in bed I thought of you And where you'd gone Let the world spin by And everything That I said I'd do Like make the world brand new Take the time for you I just got lost And slept right through the dark And the world Spins my down I let the day go by I always say goodbye I watch the stars my windowsill The whole world is moving And I'm standing still 
That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is The Weepies Behind Me Now, and we just heard from Amy Salloway, who you can find at amysalloway.com, and she teaches storytelling for the Story Studio out there in Minneapolis. She's got a two-day workshop coming up on January 25th and 26th. Just go to thestorystudio.org, Click on Learn in Person and click on Minneapolis and there's the dates. You would be hard-pressed to find a better storytelling teacher than Amy. I want to remind all of you to be on the lookout for stories that you think might be good for Risk. For example, there have been times that fans of Risk have seen articles online or videos or things on television about specific individuals who have lived through extraordinary life circumstances. Those fans have reached out to us and said, hey, you should see if you could get in touch with this woman that this happened to. And we love that sort of tip. So if you see something out there that sounds like, ooh, that person could really unpack that. And if that was turned into a risk story, we could really go in depth as to what really happened to that person that they're talking about on the news or whatever it might be. Maybe you've read a personal essay or read a memoir or something like that. Let us know. You can always email me directly at kevin at risk-show.com. Don't forget, you can always find new information about where the next Risk Live shows are happening at risk-show.com slash tour. And also, there's our social media. Everywhere we're at Risk Show on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We have our Risk Fans Discussion Group on Facebook. We also are on Reddit and on Twitter and Instagram, I am at the Kevin Allison. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Thought of you, where you go, and the world spins madly, and the world spins madly, and the world spins madly. Please. This is for my sweetie. Stop! Stop! Oh. Oh.